Good morning. In honor of our pastor, our scripture reading comes from Psalm 103 this morning. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our real, our real scripture verse comes from Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Thank you, Brenda. Uh, Really, that was just incredibly thoughtful of you. (laughs) You know, from day one, what I've loved about this church is how in your times, uh, a time of loss and grief, how they come alongside you and just encourage you and walk with you through it. And and once again, so thank you very much, Brenda. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George is, he's at their, the restaurant they're always at. It's him and Jerry and Lorraine, or Lorraine, him. And yeah, maybe Lorraine would like to be in an episode of uh, Seinfeld. Uh, Elaine, so it's George, Jerry, and Elaine. And, and they're, they're sitting there talking, as they often do. And George is typically depressed, right? He's always just kind of down about a lot of things. And, and what he's frustrated about, and I don't know how many of you feel this way, in your own life, what he's frustrated about is he feels like every decision that he makes is the wrong decision. Everyone. So if he he should go left, he always goes right. And if he should go right, if the better choice would be to go right, he ends up going left. Just every decision that he makes ends up being the wrong one. And so Jerry, being the friend that he is, has this incredible insight. And he says to him, he says, George, well, if your instincts are always wrong, then if you go against your instincts, then you'll be right. If you do the opposite of what you think you should do, then maybe that'll be right. And, and you know, this, you can just tell, the, I mean, he's so encouraged and his demeanor changes all of a sudden. He's very encouraged and he says, you're right. I will do the opposite. And so then he's, he's sitting there and Elaine notices that some beautiful woman sitting at the bar has looked in his direction. And 
She tells him, and he's like, I can't, I can't go up to her. He's like, women are not interested in balding, unemployed, broke men who live with their mother. And he's like, I, I can't go up there. I can't do that. He's like, my, in, you know, my instincts are telling me I should do that. He's like, I'm going to go against my instincts. I'm going to do the opposite. So sure enough, he goes up to the bar. He says hello to this woman. And he says, I, you know, I couldn't help but notice you looking in my direction. And she turns to him. And he says to her something to the effect of, hi, my name is George. I'm unemployed. I'm broke. And I live with my mother. And she goes, hello. (laughs) Today we're beginning a new series, a series on the book of Luke. We are not going to do the entire book of Luke. Those of you who have been with me since the beginning of my ministry here will know that I actually spent about two and a half years. We went all the way through the book of Luke, so we're not going to repeat that. We're going to look really at this second section. I don't want to say half, but it's sort of the second half of Luke. We're going to hit the sort of highlights of the second half of Luke. And what's significant about that is that from this point in the the book, chapter 9, and especially next week's verse, next week's passage is where we really see this shift. Next week, we're going to read a verse where it says, it says that from this point on, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And it's this pivotal verse in Luke's account of Jesus' ministry. And it's this idea that everything then from verse 51 is where this actually comes in Luke chapter 9. From this point on, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. And he's on his way towards Jerusalem to die, to give his life. And so then when we read everything in those chapters from that verse on, we're intended to read it through the lens of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to give his life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And that verse, especially 51, is sort of the hinge. But the passage that we're looking at today is also a part of the hinge of of this book and the transition that takes place. What we discover in chapters 4 through 8, well, if we go back, chapters 1 and 2 are about the infancy of Jesus, roughly speaking here. Then chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Then in chapter 4, we see really the beginning of Jesus' ministry as an adult. And so then between chapters 4 and 9 is sort of his ministry, the beginning of his ministry, and there is a central question that emerges in these chapters 4 through 9 that just sort of bubbles up really throughout all of the different passages in this section, and it all kind of comes to a head here where Jesus sums it up. The question that keeps emerging throughout these chapters is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is Jesus? Because you've got to remember, he begins his ministry sort of in his local area. He begins in Galilee. He was from Nazareth, so this is sort of his own area. And so people are, well, who is Jesus, right? Because to many of them, he was just, you know, the hometown boy. He's just the son of a carpenter. He didn't come from any sort of royal lineage. He wasn't, a, you know, the son of a movie star or something like that. You know, he, he just was the son of this carpenter. And so, you know, and, and what's interesting, if you think about it, many famous people don't start off famous, they start off just like you and me. I, you know, of course, there's the song by Jennifer Lopez where she says that, you know, don't get fooled by the rocks that I got because I'm still, uh, I'm just Jenny from the block. 
Y'all remember that? No, you guys don't remember that at all. But, but she's, the whole point is, hey, I'm just the girl that you knew growing up on the block. You know, she came from more humble origins. I think of it this way. My, my daughter is in kindergarten. She's got 20-some other children in her class. And for all we know, one of those kids could end up becoming the next, or not the next president. I hope it's not that soon. Uh, but, yeah, uh, 30 years from now, right? You've got to be 35, I think. 30 years from now or so, one of them could become the next president of the United States. Today, they're just Bridget and Raphael and, and Ella and Alexa. They're just friends of Gracie. And so it would be quite, quite amazing if one of them did. And so you've got to imagine that's how a lot of these people are thinking about, you know, who, who is Jesus? Because, you know, they knew him, and, and many of them knew him as the carpenter's son. But there's something different about this boy. There's something different about this man now. He's a little bit different. He's unique. He, he has a facility of the scriptures, of their sacred text. He has a facility with the scriptures, which would be uncommon for the son of a carpenter in that age. Uh, he seems to speak with an authority, a sort of spiritual authority that does not seem to typically be seen in the son of a carpenter. And he seems to also have the power to heal in some capacity or another. So there's some confusion. And so this question just bubbles up in these five chapters, four through nine, of who is Jesus? And it comes to a head here. Finally, Jesus just kind of says, okay. He turns to his disciples, and this is what he says. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the people <coughs> think that I am? What's the word on the street about me? <coughs> And of course, what do they say? Well, it says here, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And of course, John the Baptist was recently executed uh, by King Herod. So some, it seems, thought that maybe he had come back to life or something like this. Of course, the prophet Elijah was taken up into heaven. We read about that in the Old Testament scriptures. And so there was this expectation that had kind of grown Uh, since the time of Elijah, that maybe he would come back. And so they're suggesting, the crowd seem to think, maybe that's who Jesus is. Maybe he's one of the prophets of old. And of course, really, that's, in a sense, that's certainly what Elijah was. Elijah was a prophet. And so they have kind of this idea that Jesus is, you know, he's he's special. He's he's a prophet. He's got, and, and when you start thinking about a prophet, what did, what were sort of characteristics of prophets? Well, Prophets were individuals who had a keen understanding of the scriptures. Uh, They heard from the Lord. The Lord sort of spoke through them. They had a sort of spiritual connection with God. They had a certain authority in the way that they said things. This is what you would find if you go back and look at the various prophets throughout Old Testament history. So they had sort of this authority with which uh, they spoke. Uh, Some, you know, had healing powers, of course. We find that in various prophets throughout the Old Testament. And so there seems to be this sense here. They're they're saying, okay, yeah, he's one of the prophets. And what you got to realize here is there's a sense in which they're kind of setting him alongside these other great individuals of history. Oh, he's like Elijah He's like John the Baptist, right? He's, he's one of many great men of God. And I think, actually, that's how many people think of Jesus today. I think there are many people today who have a deep respect 
for Jesus, a deep respect for the teachings of Jesus, a deep respect for his connection with God, that maybe he speaks with a kind of spiritual authority. I think many people would, would even perhaps uh, agree and that, that he ha- perhaps had the ability to, to heal people and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think it wouldn't be uncommon for them to say, yeah, so we should place him alongside many other great spiritual leaders throughout history. Right? Place him alongside Moses and place him alongside John and place him alongside Elijah and place him alongside Muhammad and place him alongside Buddha. You know, place him alongside these various other spiritual gurus throughout history. So I I think that many uh, people in our culture today would probably resonate with how the crowds felt about Jesus. So Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? But then then he turns it to them and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this question is an incredibly important question for all of us to ask. In fact, I would suggest to you there is not a greater question that we need to ask. Who is Jesus? You have a lot of important questions that you might ask during your lifetime. Important questions. Should I marry Susie? Should I take this job in California? Should I take this promotion? Um, These are the kinds of, these are important questions, right? These are questions that we need to answer, but I would say that as important as those kinds of questions are, who should I marry? Where should I live? What kind of job should I take? As important as these questions are, they pale in comparison to this one central question, Who is Jesus? Because our answer to that question, you see, all those other questions that we might ask, you see, they're going to be shaped and shaded by the way in which we answer that question. Who is Jesus? So Jesus has been doing his ministry now. We don't know exactly for how long at this point in the narrative here. But he finally turns to the disciples and he says, okay, so So you've told me what the crowds think. You've told me what the word on the street is about me. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, this this verse, the way he answers that, helps us to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not not his last name. It's a title. Christ is a, a title that is given to Jesus. Now, of course, titles, you know, can become your last name. In fact, that's often how we get last names. So if your last name is Baker, for example, uh, there's a good chance somebody back in your ancestry was a baker. That was their title. You know, so your ancestry of John the Baker, you, you know, so you, you came from someone whose title was a baker. If your name is Smith, last name's Smith, then perhaps in your lineage there's somebody who worked with silver, so a title can sort of become a last name. So it's not a terrible thing to say that Jesus' last name was Christ in in this sense, but we've got to understand what it is. It's a title. What does this title mean? What does Christ mean? Christ, well, the, the Greek word is Christos, and it is the Greek word for a Hebrew word, and that is the word for Messiah. If you see the word Christ in your Bibles, it means Messiah. It's just the Greek word for the word Messiah. So when He says, you are the Christ of God. He's saying that you are the Messiah. Now, 
What's the Messiah? What does that mean? Well, the, the Messiah is something that the origin of that word goes all the way back even to Aaron, when Aaron and his brothers were anointed as priests of Yahweh. The, the word Messiah means anointed one, so it goes back there. But for people living in Jesus' day, when they heard of Messiah, what it, what it mainly referred to in their minds is it took them back to King David. And it took them back in particular to a passage of Scripture in which David is anointed. David is anointed as the man of God, as God's king. And he's anointed. And in this passage, he, it says of him that he will, be, he will usher in a kingdom that will never end. That David will, will be the one through whom the kingdom of God comes. David and his line, his house, through him, God's kingdom will come and bring salvation and renewal to not just, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. His kingdom will, will never end. And so when they hear the word Messiah, that's what they're thinking of. They're thinking of, and then, of course, what, what happened from the time of David is that after David's kingdom, his, his kingdom was, of course, ended up coming to an end about 500 years after his reign. And so then the prophets began to prophesy about this time when God would raise up the new David, the new King David, the final King David who would come and would fulfill this promise that was given to the original David, and this was the Messiah. And so he's saying, you are, you're not just a prophet, you're not just a priest, you are the Lord over everything. To be Messiah is to be the Lord over all things. Now, what are the practical implications of this, right? What are the practical implications of how we answer this question? Either he's a prophet, you know, or, or he's Lord of all. And I would say, here's the difference. You listen to a prophet. You surrender to your Lord. You listen. You listen to someone who has that kind of spiritual insight. You might listen to them. You might see them, I, I say, in some respects, like a consultant, maybe. You, you respect their, what they have to say. You respect their words. You listen to them. And, you, you know, again, like if you're in, in a company and a company hires a consultant to come deal with some sort of issue that your company is facing, you're going to show a great deal of respect for whoever it is you hire. Presumably, you hire somebody who has expertise in that area, and so you respect them, but they're a consultant, and they may tell you, you should do this, you should do that, this is what you should do, and you'll take that into consideration, but it's different, right? It's different, it's different when your boss tells you what to do. If a consultant says, go this way, you might do it. But if your boss tells you to do it, you do it because you are surrendered to them. That might be somewhat of a mundane example. But I think for many people in our culture today, we're happy to say that Jesus, he was a good teacher, uh, he was a prophet, he had a lot of spiritual wisdom. And so I'm going to take into account some of the things that Jesus says. I want to take them in and process what he has to say. And then I'm also going to take in some of the teachings of other great religious figures throughout history and kind of pull all of that in as, and, and, and then just kind of see where that leads me. And see, that's the difference. That's why we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus 
a prophet or is he Messiah? Is he Lord over all? Because if we see him as Lord over all, then we don't just listen to him, we surrender to him. Now, what does it look like to surrender to the Messiah? What does it look like to surrender to, our Lord, to the Lord who is Lord over all things? Or another way of putting that is, what does he ask of us? If we are to surrender to him, what does he actually ask of us? And the answer is everything. He asks us to surrender everything. We see this here. Verse 23, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Later on in chapter 14, he says, any of you who does not, will not give up everything cannot be my disciple. If Jesus is Lord, we're called to surrender everything. I don't know about you, but I, I remember a number of years ago, I had to go to the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, and I, I don't have anything against the DMV. Certainly, if you work there, nothing against the people who work there at the DMV, really. I, I mean, I've had, I've had some good experiences with some people at the DMV. I've had some not-so-good experiences with people at the DMV. Nothing against the people who work there or anything like that, but here's just the reality. I hate going to the DMV. I don't know about you, but I just... I hate it. I hate going there. And I've been there and, and had to stand there for hours before. And I hate that. You know, and, and, and here's why. Here's why I think as an American, I don't like it when the government takes my time from me. I think as an American, I just don't like it when the government takes my time from me. So those two hours that I had to give really frustrated me. Do you know how much of your time Jesus wants? All of it. All of it. Of course, the DMV isn't really our our main problem with the government, right? Right? It's the IRS. We don't want to give the the government our money. Right? We're Americans. We don't like giving our our money to to authorities. That's how the whole whole thing got started, right? And, And so... You know, them taking a third of our income or whatever it is, somewhere in that range for different people. You know, we don't want to give a portion of our income to the government. Do you know how much of your money God wants? All of it. All of it. That every financial decision that we make is a decision that we're called to surrender before the Lord. He doesn't just want some of your time and some of your money. He wants all of it. That's what it means to surrender to him as Lord over all. Another thing that we don't like as Americans is when our freedom of speech is infringed upon, right? We like to be able to say, Whatever we want to say, we don't want anybody, we don't want the government interfering with what we say. Do you realize that that God wants us not just to surrender what we say, but what we think? 
Not just what we write, not just the things that we say to our coworkers, but the things that we think. 2 Corinthians 10 says, verse 5 says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What does it mean to surrender to Jesus as Lord over all? It means to surrender everything. You know, there's a, a, another, there's so many verses that kind of talk about the totality of, of our surrender before God. And one verse, of course, is just the greatest commandment. I had Jen read it during the worship time, the great commandment. What is the greatest commandment? And of course, Jesus just sums up what you find in the Old Testament. He says, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And I've said this before, but if you think about it, is there anything left? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. I mean, honestly, is there anything left? Uh, I've shared this illustration before. I, I think it's a good one, so I'll do it again. About 10 years ago, I was in a, a Bible study with a, a group of men at, at the last church that I was in. And it was actually this study, we were going through some sort of financial. It wasn't financial peace, but it was some sort of financial program. And I remember this one lesson where they, they're helping you to sort of, well, really budgeting is what this was about, and helping you to determine what your discretionary money was, right? So maybe at the end of the month, you want to have some, uh, some discretionary money. And your discretionary money is that money that you can, you can do whatever you want with it. I mean, you could, you could buy, you know, a bunch of cotton candy. Uh, you could go to the beach you could, you know, buy a silly hat uh, just because you, you know, like silly hats. You know, like, a, like an eagle's hat or something like that, something silly. <laughs> but this is your discretionary money. You can do whatever you, whatever you want with it. And, and it was helping us to figure that out. Well, how do you figure that out in a responsible way? And so what they, they did actually is they came up with this formula. And I'm going to put the formula. Do we have this up here? Nick, here's the, here's the formula. <clears throat> and so INC, that's your income. Income minus G, that's your giving. That's what you give to church, give to charity, whatever. Uh, Income minus giving minus your savings, right? So saving for college, for your kids and retirement, that sort of thing. Then minus IR, that's your irregular bills. Those are those things that just kind of came out of nowhere. You weren't expecting it. Maybe a pipe broke and you got some water damage, something like that. You know, that's your irregular expenses. Then RMB, that's your regular monthly bills, right? That's your regularly monthly bills. So you, you take your income and you subtract all of those things, and then whatever's left over, that's your DM. That's your discretionary money. That's the money you can do whatever you want with it. You can spend it on cotton candy or whatever you want to do with it, right? Now, I thought it would be interesting if we took this formula and applied it to the greatest commandment, right? For all you math whizzes out there, you're like, Why can't the Bible look more like a math textbook? Well, that's what we're going to do right now. We are going to take the greatest commandment, and we are going to turn it into a mathematical formula. Okay, here we go. Let's start at the beginning here. So here's here's the formula. It's Y minus LG equals DY. Now, Y, we've got to explain what these are. Y is you. That's you. That's you. Okay? And then LG, that's your love for God. Okay? So... Love for God. And then DY, that's your discretionary you. 
that's the part of you that, you know, you can say to God, ah, sorry, God, this is mine, stay out, right? This is that part of your life. You're like, I don't really want to give that to God. You know, I've budgeted well, so I can just kind of keep this part to myself. This is your discretionary you, okay? So let's, let's find out. Let's plug in the values and see what comes up. So here we go. Um, go, to, go ahead and go to the next slide. Okay, you. Okay, you are your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength. That's you. Okay, then uh, your, go to the next one. Your love for God, okay? Uh, it's your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength. So we, now we know what those are. Let's plug those into the formula and see what comes up. So your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength minus your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength equals zero. Your DY, your discretionary you, is zero. God wants all of you. What does it mean to surrender to Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, is to surrender everything to him. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to continue on this series called Surrender, and we're going to be looking at what does it mean to surrender everything to Jesus. We're going to go through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to journey with him. We're going to journey with Christ through these chapters and we're going to see what it looks like to surrender our lives to him. We're going to see, all kind of, we're going to see that it means to surrender, surrender things to God. Things, our things, the things in our lives, right? I mean, we have so many things in our life. Don't we? I mean, our life is just full of things. And we're going to see the importance of surrendering those things things to God, that of course is where our finances come and our finances come undergird our things, right? Our money is what enables us to have our things. And so there's this surrendering of our things and our finances, everything to God, surrendering our things. We're going to see surrendering our pride. Surrendering our pride, you know what that is? Surrendering your pride is surrendering the need to feel important. Surrendering that need to feel important, that need for, for other people to be affirming you, and it's surrendering that. It's saying, this isn't about me. I boast not about myself. I boast entirely in God. It's surrendering our pride, surrendering that need to feel. Don't, don't so many of us, I know I struggle with this. Don't we struggle with this, this need to feel important? And so we've got to, we got to, we're always looking for avenues in our life to find importance, for, for people to see us as important. We're see surrendering our pride, surrendering our need to feel important, surrendering our control. How many of us, we, we struggle when things are out of control? We want to control things at work. We want to control things. We want to control things in our family. Maybe we want to control things in church. We want to control things with our in-laws. I mean, we just, if things don't go the way that we want them to go, it's, things get out of control. That's very difficult for us. And surrendering our lives to Christ means surrendering that control, that need to be in control. It means surrendering ourselves to others. This is a big part of it, surrendering ourselves to others. Of course, 
You know, when Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, then he goes on and says the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We see throughout Scripture that one of the primary ways in which we love God is by loving others. So we're going to see the importance of surrendering ourselves for other people rather than looking out for ourselves. Our tendency is always to be thinking of ourselves and looking to protect ourselves. And this is going to be an opportunity for us to see the importance of letting go of that. Surrendering ourselves for the needs of others. What goes hand in hand with this is surrendering ourselves to the mission of God. We have our own plans and our purposes that that we set out for ourselves, but saying, you know what, I take that and I even place that underneath. I surrender that underneath the mission of God and God's plan and desire to use me to, to extend his kingdom in the sphere of influence that he's given to me. Surrendering to mission, surrendering our schedule, surrendering our time, taking a look at our calendar and saying, God, I... I, I, I want my time. You decide. what you, you, you schedule my schedule. You help me to, to, to figure out where you want me to be and where you want my time to be. And, of course, a part of that, not all of it, but a part of it is, of course, carving out time simply to be with God. It's one of the reasons why this, this series coincides with the season of Lent, which is a, a time where we can sort of refocus a little bit I mean, that's why I'm doing this family devotional. It's a way maybe you can carve out that time with your family to spend with the Lord. Maybe you want to carve out some more time personally to spend with the Lord. There are all kinds of wonderful devotionals that you can do, 40-day devotionals that will just kind of cover the season uh, leading up into Easter. And so it's just a way of, a way of surrendering our time, surrendering ourselves uh, to God. Of course, one of the things that some people are doing is, is even surrendering their appetite. Oh, Micah, you all right, buddy? Gosh, he's had a, Micah's had a rough time when he's around me. He, it's a long story, but he, I had the treadmill going in our basement, and he, I didn't know it was on, and he, anyway, he, he, anyway, I'm sorry, Micah's having a tough time. Is he okay? All right, good. Anyway, so this is a, a season of surrender. And I encourage you to to take that seriously, to be thinking about ways in which in these next seven weeks, you might want to be intentional about what that would look like in your life. Of course, now here's here's the question. I'm just going to end it with this. Why would we do this? Why would we do this? Why would we... Why would we surrender all of these things? I mean, doesn't this, I mean, in some respects, doesn't this sound terrible? I mean, if it doesn't sound terrible, if I'm not scaring you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm clearly not getting my point across here. Because this should, this should kind of scare you a little bit. This should make you uncomfortable. And the question is, why would we do this? And the answer is because this is what leads to For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. You see, this is the incredible, the incredible mystery of the gospel. Is that our life is to follow the pattern of the cross. That you see, what we're going to discover over the next seven weeks is we're going to see Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. 
Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, and as he encourages us to surrender more of our lives, what is he doing? He's surrendering his life. He's giving his life for us, and then ultimately he gives his life on the cross for us. He gives his literal life for us. But then on Easter Sunday, he comes back to life. And it establishes this pattern The pattern of the cross, which is what the Christian life is all about, it is this belief that if we die to ourselves as Jesus died to himself, that as he was raised from the grave, you see, we are are in Christ. We are with Christ, and as we follow that, then that leads to life. In other words, the path that leads to life is doing the exact opposite of what you think you should do. I started this by sharing the episode of Seinfeld where George realizes that his instincts, every instinct is wrong. Every every instinct, everything he thinks he should go in this direction, it's never the right one. And so he realizes I should do the opposite of what my instincts are. And strangely, in that episode, it actually works. And I'd say that that's actually a parable for the entire human condition. That our hearts don't get, our hearts don't understand what it is that actually leads to life that our inclinations draw us and point us in a direction that does not lead to life. And so we actually need to go against that. That as we seek to surrender ourselves to God, there are going to be so many times like, I don't want to do this. This does not seem like this makes sense to me. That's when we look at the cross. That's when we look at the empty tomb. And that's when we discover that surrendering to Christ is what leads to life. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for, we praise you that you came for us, Lord. We praise you that you have created us for a life that really goes beyond anything that we could imagine. God, we settle for We settle for things that are temporary, fleeting. God, I pray that over the next seven weeks, pray that you would be at work in our hearts, Lord, that it will be hard, no question it will be hard, to throw off those things in our lives that we have become so attached to, those things in which we perhaps even find our identity. We may begin to wonder how we could do without some of these things that perhaps you're calling us to pull away from. God, I pray that your spirit would come, that you would work in us, that you would give us the strength and the faith to surrender ourselves to you, that we might find the fullness of life. We pray this in Jesus' name.